Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Tavis Smiley. For millions of Americans, Tavis is a familiar voice and face. But if you are not aware of him, Tavis Smiley is one of the most prominent journalists in America and one of the most accomplished African-American journalists and commentators there has ever been. Smiley was the first African-American to host national shows on NPR as well as PBS. For years, he was the host of BET Tonight, the winner of many NAACP Image Awards, and more recently has launched KBLA in Los Angeles, the only Black-owned political talk radio network west of the Mississippi River. This was a sweeping conversation about what it is to be Black in America that sees me and Tavis trading perspectives on many things, including Black conservatism and Black liberalism, racial assimilation and Black identity, race versus class, the work of William Julius Wilson, Bob Woodson, and more. But while we agree and disagree on many points, Tavis and I stand firmly united on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the need for leaders, white and Black, in America today to hew to his example. Tavis and I get deep on the teachings of King while trading quotes back and forth from the likes of Maya Angelou and Albert Murray, looking at his disagreements with sparring partners like Larry Elder, John McWhorter, and more. In an era where what it means to be a Black American often finds itself reduced to simple tropes, I'd like to think that Tavis and I succeed in unearthing some of the complexity and diversity within the Black experience. There is no one way to be Black, just as there is no one way to be an American. The conversation is a rich one. So without further ado, Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley, welcome to Uniting America, brother. How are you? I am doing the best I can. If I complained, <laughs> I'd be an ingrate, and I'm delighted to be with you, brother. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we've both got a lot to be grateful for, and of course, I'm just grateful for your presence. Thank uh, you, here. sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Indeed. Well, you know, I wanted to jump into some substantive points of discussion, but I didn't want to do that before talking a little bit uh, about who you are mm-hmm. uh, through the lens of your upbringing and how that gives shape to your values and, and how you see the world. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, the circumstances mm-hmm. of your upbringing, the, the influence of your parents on how you see the world? Because I think there are certain facets of your upbringing that may surprise some people. Yeah. So I was born in the gut bucket south of Mississippi. Mm-hmm was just there for a few years in, in uh, my early life. My father was in the Air Force, and we got transferred to an Air Force base in uh, the Midwest, in Indiana, to be exact. So I pretty much grew up in the Midwest, and I love growing up in the Midwest. I can't imagine having grown up anyplace else. It was a, just a beautiful um, upbringing in that part of the country. But I went back to the South in the summers, oftentimes, to spend time with my grandmother, who we called Big Mama. So I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. with her in the summer, in the summer months. Um, I'm one of 10 kids. Um, I'm the eldest of my mother's kids. Um, and, and about 1970, 71, I had an aunt, my mother's sister was murdered and my parents ended up taking in her four kids. So total, there are 10 of us. So we've been a large family. Um, I grew up in poverty. Um, never really wanted for anything. There's always food. So we were not, you know, we were not destitute, um, but, uh, didn't have access to the finer things in life, as we would say. So that, 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 that shaped who I am today, um, having grown up in poverty, um, grown up um, in the Midwest, uh, in a pretty much all white environment. I went to a, a elementary school, junior high, high school. Um, there were literally a handful of African-Americans in the school, and most of those were us because there are right. 10 kids in my family. Sure. <laughs> uh, so my only really, ex- my only real exposure um, 
to the black experience writ large was mm. growing up in a black church, which mm. I'm uh, eternally grateful for. Right. So growing up in that black church you know, kind of rooted me and grounded me in that way, but never had a black teacher, never had a black professor until I got to college. So, you know, so that, that's that's the that's the basis of the uh, of the uh, of the of the of growing up. Yeah. And is there a way in which your your upbringing and the role of your mother and your father uh, or the black church for that mm-hmm. matter sort of has, has given a shape to your values and the way you see the world that perhaps uh, expresses itself in your work? today? Oh, sure. Um, when you grow up um, in the black church, as I did, and I grew up in a Pentecostal church, so we're right. literally in church, you know, seven days a week. If you know anything about that experience, like right. literally seven days a week, we're in church. Yeah. So I've, I've maintained throughout my career that the three things that have undergirded me are what I call the three F's and in this order, faith, family and friends. So my my faith uh, has been abiding throughout my my journey. Uh, my family um, is uh, is is my world. Essentially, I've got seven younger brothers. And so uh, a lot of the work that I do is not born of theory. It's born of having grown up in experience. Uh, where I know what it means to be poor, what I know what it means to be a black male, what I know what it means to look out and be concerned about the future of these seven younger brothers who are coming behind me. Um, and that roots and grounds a lot of a lot of what I do. Um, and, um, you know, I, I am I am grateful uh, because I realize that when you consider where I started and where I've been blessed to arrive in my career, you don't do that alone. Um, Dr. King said, you know, our destiny is inextricably tied together. Right. None of us accomplishes what we accomplishes, whatever we accomplish by ourselves. And so I, I, I find myself reminding people that none of us are really self-made. We use this mm-hmm. term all the time. He's a self-made this and he's a self-made that and she's a self-made this. Well, not really. None of us are self-made because you didn't birth yourself. Mm-hmm. You didn't burp yourself. Right. You didn't change yourself. You didn't educate yourself. You didn't mm-hmm. raise yourself. Uh, we are who we are because somebody loved us. Mm-hmm. And so I am who I am today because people loved me and uh, that's never lost on me and it's never absent in the work that I try to do. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Now that, that provides, I think, a pretty useful segue uh, into uh, one area of tension that oftentimes uh, emerges mm-hmm. in political discourse, broadly speaking, and also within sort of the intradiscourse mm-hmm. of, of black America. Uh, that politically speaking is what is actually, I, I would say, sort of a historic uh dialogue, even as party affiliations have shifted Mm -hmm. and proportionally representation within the parties has very dramatically over American history. But there's this long running sort of dialectic between, you know, I mean, for lack of of, of better terms, you might say sort of, you know, black liberalism Mm -hmm. and black conservatism. Right. And those those really are imperfect terms, by the way, but we do the best we can with the language we have. And, um, you know, I remember being a younger person, uh, riding around the car, listening uh, to to talk radio with my dad, and hearing folks like you and Larry Elder in conversation <laughs> yeah. with each other, yeah. right, and sort of getting the poles of the perspectives mm-hmm. and and so forth. Um, and I learned a lot from those conversations growing up. I don't know what your relationship is like with with Larry mm-hmm. today, but at the time, you know, there was uh, one just a starting point of inspiration to see that you know brothers like yourselves could have mm-hmm. you know hard conversations sure, sure, sure. like that. Very intelligent, coming from dramatically mm-hmm. different perspectives. Um, you say that we don't do uh, we don't accomplish anything by ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And I think that most thoughtful people would agree with that. But certainly, in the conservative perspective in general, there's also this emphasis on personal agency, sure, sure, sure. right? Taking responsibility mm-hmm. for your actions. And not outsourcing that, That's right. right, to the government, to the state, or what have mm-hmm. you. Um, could you tell me, you know, what is your broad uh, critique of black conservatism on the one hand? And on the other hand, 
do you seem do you see redeeming value in points of agreement even from your own more left-leaning perspective yeah it's a good question first of all i i'm, I'm sorry your father put you through that having to listen to larry elder <laughs> <laughs> listen to larry elder and me go uh, at it back in the day uh, oh no man i'm grateful that's yeah. that's why i'm doing what i do no now. <laughs> no that's, it's a beautiful thing man you, I, I say all the time yeah. all you know is what you're giving you never right. know what people are receiving and when larry and i i think i can speak for larry in this instance when yeah. larry and i were mm-hmm. having those debates on kabc talk right. radio back in the day we had no idea that a young John Wood was listening uh, and would be influenced <laughs> by those conversations. So it's a beautiful yeah. thing. You, mm-hmm. you give everything you can and you don't know what mm-hmm. people are receiving, but uh, mm-hmm. it's always humbling for me to hear stories like this when people reflect on having listened to me or watched me when they were growing up. So it's right. a beautiful thing. And it reminds me that it's great. My goatee is real. I'm, I'm getting a little older, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's well earned and it yeah. looks good. It looks no, I, I appreciate it. So back to your question though. Um, so yeah, so Larry and I were having these really dynamic d- debates back in the day. You know, two black yeah. men. I was at KBC first. Larry came uh, thereafter. Larry's brilliant, as you said. Yeah. Um, I think oftentimes wrong, but brilliant. Uh, mm-hmm. A lawyer from University of Michigan. Uh, so he's he's pedigreed. Um, he uh, knows what he's talking about um, and how to present himself. Uh, what we what we were essentially you know debating about back in the day into this and, and still debating about. He ran for governor, as you know, in yes, this recall did. election a year yes, or so did. ago. <clears throat> and I had him as a guest on my program when he was running. So we we still right. communicate. We, we we were never the best of friends, but we communicate. And if I call Larry, he calls me back and vice versa. So, you know, right. I believe that we can disagree without mm-hmm. being disagreeable. Right. We can still get along and still communicate. And mm-hmm. for me, I'm never afraid. And, and Larry knew this and then and knows it now. I am never afraid to be in conversations where people challenge me to reexamine the assumptions that I hold. Mm-hmm. I'm never afraid to have my inventory of ideas. Um, uh, uh, expanded. Right. Um, so I, I don't believe that I have a monopoly on the truth. I believe that there, John, is the truth and then there is the way to the truth. Right. And you got to be wise enough and humble enough to acknowledge that mm. what you know is the truth that you know. Right. Um, but you can't be uh, demeaning or demonizing of others who may experience a different truth or may not have arrived where you have on your journey trying to understand and experience the truth. And for mm. me, that's what life ultimately is all about. For me, right. life is ultimately about a search for truth. My goal, my mission is to seek the truth, speak the truth, stand on the truth and stay with the truth. Right. And I believe I'm obligated, even as a talk show host every day now, to share with people the truth that I do know. But again, mm-hmm. never afraid to have people push back on me. Yeah. Maybe there's something for me to learn. So mm-hmm. I was never afraid of those conversations with Larry. And, and oftentimes Larry got me to see things perhaps through a different prism, mm-hmm. never fundamentally changed my view of the world. Right. Uh, but in short, um, I believe this, that black people historically have always been more conservative uh, on the um, economic issues and more liberal on the social issues. I think mm-hmm. that's always been true of us. And I don't think that's changed much down through the years. If that answers your question. Well, it does get to some of it, uh, Mm -hmm. but would you differentiate socially in terms of, on the one hand, there's lifestyle issues and so forth. There's where you stand Mm -hmm. on abortion. Mm -hmm. There's where you stand on, you know, gay marriage and so forth. And then there's where you stand on civil rights issues, Mm -hmm. civil liberties issues and so forth. Would would you draw sort of a a distinction there in terms of- I think think, think it's getting harder. It's a very good question and I'm not trying to dance around it. It's getting harder and harder to categorize, you know, black people writ large. Mm -hmm. Um, We are not a monolith and never have been. Um, but as time goes on, as we advance, as people experience different kinds of uh, lifestyles themselves, as people um, consider uh, what it means to always be in the mode of expanding rights and not mm-hmm. shrinking rights, um, then you know, again, it's I'm I'm finding it. I do this every day. I'm finding it harder and harder to pigeonhole, mm-hmm. to categorize African-Americans. That's why I said I think writ large. We've always been I, I take the distinction you're making. I wouldn't argue that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, again, on most social issues, we've been more 
liberal, mm. uh, and on most economic issues, we've been more conservative. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, here's another uh, lane of, of of discourse. I grew up with a mother, black mother from inner city Los Angeles, mm-hmm. who politically speaking happens to be liberal and vote Democrat okay. and come from a more modest background and a white father uh, from the South, from Tennessee, uh, who happens to be politically conservative, mm-hmm. who grew up in great wealth. And so so I, I sort of came up at the intersection of right. all of these different socioeconomic sort, sort of categories. And, you know, I have my own sort of identity sure, journey. Sure, sure, that, sure, sure. That proceeds through that. I, you know, I, I tell people today, I say, you know, I grew up in Dr. King's promised land. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in that beloved community. My parents didn't have the perfect marriage. In fact, they divorced mm-hmm. when I was very young. But I nevertheless grew up in a way to where I felt black and white loving me on a daily, bla- mm-hmm. daily basis in a multicultural community, mm-hmm. uh, Culver City, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where I was very much um, accepted uh, in terms of, you know, who I was mm-hmm. culturally and ethnically, even as I was, and even, you know, sort of encouraged as I was figuring that, figuring uh, those distinctions out. Um, but I think that there is this overarching conversation within much Black America, and much of America, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. in terms of how important should racial identity mm-hmm. be to us, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, uh, John McWhorter is, uh, is a friend of mine. Sure. I'm right. John, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's young commentators like, you know, Coleman Hughes mm-hmm. and others who make this argument, which says that, you know, there's a way in which we really hold ourselves back, you know, as black people and people in general, mm-hmm. when we place so much importance on identifying as, as, as black or using race as sort of a, a framework for our value system mm-hmm. that we fail to be able to perhaps one, reason out of our racial box and two identify with the human experience sort of beyond that mm-hmm. right and so you know i think about a, a lot of folks who sort of come at the question with that perspective we'll, we'll, th- we'll talk about the work of ralph El- sure, uh, sure. ralph ellison visible mm-hmm. you know visible man and albert murray who mm-hmm. wrote omni americans and albert murray you know had this uh this this thought which said that you know you don't really know what it is to be an american unless you appreciate the fact that with the part of yourself you're a midwesterner with the part of yourself mm-hmm. you're a new, you're you're a new england yankee with the part of yourself you're a white southerner and with part of yourself you're an african american right mm-hmm. um and so i guess my question for you is you know um one you know do you see there as being a right or wrong place to land on this on this spectrum, I mean, is you are certainly, you know, mm-hmm. you're a face of advancement in terms of, you know, uh, black representation, uh, media industry in so many places. And that's something I see you very much own. Mm-hmm. But can you be too black? Can you be not black enough? Can you be too integrationist, right? Too mm-hmm. assimilationist? Do we lose some of ourselves when we do that? Yeah. Can you unpack the complexity of this? It, it's a complex question. A quick break here. At Braver Angels, we hold live, in-person, and online events talking about the widest range of issues, including race. In my conversation with Tavis, as you'll hear, we talk about a wide range of important thinkers, but unmentioned in our conversation is Ibram X. Kendi, notable as a leading proponent of philosophical anti-racism. I quoted Ibram Kendi, alongside Kendi critic, writer Thomas Chatterton Williams, to my friends Rakeem Brooks, now president of the Alliance for Justice, and writer and podcaster Coleman Hughes in the context of the same basic question Tavis and I wrestle with here. Namely, how important is blackness? How important is racial identity? Here's a little of what they had to say. So I have a quote here uh, from Ibram X. Kendi in How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he says, quote, singular race makers push for the end of categorizing and identifying by race. 
But the unfortunate truth is that their well-meaning post-racial strategy makes no sense in our racist world. That's even Kendi. Uh, and now, uh, from the other side of that uh, spectrum, take some words from uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams. I will no longer enter into the all-American skin game that demands you select a box and define yourself by it. Uh, and he goes on to say that uh, whether we are referring to, quote, uh, 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 vicious bigotry or well-meaning anti-racism, unquote, that the perpetuation of these racial categories um, is per pernicious. And he further says, quote, I'm not renouncing my blackness and going on about my day. I am rejecting le the legitimacy of the entire racial construct in which blackness functions as one orienting pole. Granted that there are these two poles where we could consider ourselves to be um, highly race conscious or absolutely sort of colorblind and disregarding racial categories. Is there a balance to be sought between these two? There are areas of life in which, to me, it seems appropriate to have a race consciousness, a benign kind of race consciousness. Am I going to go up to a Jewish person and say, you have to stop identifying as Jewish insofar as their Judaism means they have they like, you know, Passover is meaningful to them. They like to think about the ancestral story. Um, you know, the memory of the Holocaust means something to them. They celebrate Hanukkah and so forth. That seems to me a rather benign kind of group identity. Now, that kind of group identity, unfortunately, very quickly bleeds into, into areas where it, it becomes pernicious. It blinds you, blinds you to, to facts about the world that are unwelcome to the group. To Coleman's point, to the extent identity is obscuring anything on either side, that is to say that enough white Americans are acknowledging that it had something to do with race or enough black Americans aren't acknowledging the other factors beyond race, one would have to understand their identity as black or as a man or as a woman or as any particular category in order to then be able to confront how group identities might be constricting their ability to understand something or, and this Coleman didn't say, and I'm curious if you would agree with it, or actually may enhance one's ability to see something that other groups are unable to see. Uh, again, I, I go back to what I said a moment ago. I think it's harder and harder to box black people in. Um, yeah. This is such, um, navigating life is such an, is such an individual pursuit. It's such an individual journey. Yeah. And so I, I find as I get older, that these boxes are just, they're, 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 um, they're obsolete. And, and it's just difficult to categorize black folk in that regard. Let me, let me try to come at your question this yeah. way. Um, I think that for those persons like John McWhorter, who I know and oftentimes disagree with, um, I don't think that black people make race the center of their existence. Mm. I think the world that we inhabit makes race the centerpiece of our existence. Um, Johnny Cochran famously said years ago that race is a part of everything in America. I think Johnny was right about that. He was roundly criticized when he said that after the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, but I think Johnny was right about that, that race is a part of every single thing in America. I believe that racism is still the most intractable issue in this country. Mm. I don't think that is of our making. That is not of our doing. I would I would much prefer to wake up every day and be allowed to be seen for who I am uh, and for what I bring to the table. But there's something about this racial construct we have to navigate uh, in and through every single day um, that makes it difficult um, to just show up and be who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it difficult to just succeed or be judged on meritocracy, on what you've earned, 
because everybody is always seeing you through a different sort of prism. And that prism happens to be race. It's been the conundrum of America since since America first began. Uh, And obviously, as we well know, Africans were brought to this country against their will. So this construct of race is not a construct that we built. It is uh, nonetheless, though, a construct that we have to operate inside of. And I think that John and others are wrong when they suggest that we are making too much about that, that we are raising that particular issue. Um, I think there are legitimate grievances that African-Americans have. Um, There are legitimate um, uh, complaints and concerns that we have now and have had historically. Um, that this country continues to ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this debate we're having now about affirmative action at the level of the Supreme Court, you know, I'm one of those persons who believes very simply that you cannot solve for race without mm-hmm. first considering race. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we're now about to end a corrective program like affirmative action, which has not just benefited black people, but indeed benefited white women and others, um, is I'm not naive about it. And I understand the way this Supreme Court is, is, is taking this country. As I said earlier, our nation is always at its best when we're expanding rights and not shrinking rights. But it's pretty clear the trajectory on which they are, uh, uh, are taking us, mm-hmm. uh, assigning America, if you will. And I'm, I'm troubled by that in a variety of ways. But on this issue of race, people want to get over it. They want to get past it. They want to get around mm-hmm. it, but they don't want to address it. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why African-Americans still lag far behind in every single leading economic indicator category. Uh, and it's not because I'm less than. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not because I'm being judged on something other than race. It's primarily because of the melanin in my skin. Mm-hmm. So we can look the other way. We can blame black people for their own plight. Uh, but the reality is that race is a construct in this country. Race is not just um, a a um, a personal reality. It is a political reality. Mm. And so long as we try to ignore that, I think we're never going to make progress on the issue, if, if any of that makes sense to you. No, all of that yeah, makes yeah, yeah, sense yeah. to me. And I think we're going in a we're going in the right direction, mm-hmm. this conversation to sure. get to some deeper, some deeper soil. I do want to pause mm-hmm. uh, very quickly to ask you, do you have a working definition uh, that that, that that feels right to you mm. of the concept racism. Mm. How do we define racism? It's a good question. Um, racism uh, is defined uh, to my mind in the way that Dr. King, uh, I regard Dr. King as most of my fan base knows. I say this all the time. I regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment. I can argue on Abraham Lincoln. I can argue on FDR. But to my mind, uh, Dr. King is the greatest American this country's ever produced. I think something similar. I oftentimes yeah. say that Dr. King, for me, was really the sort of, he was the founding father of of the America that I mm-hmm. know. Founding mm-hmm. father of 20th century America. I received that. I totally received that and wouldn't argue at all, obviously. Yeah. To your question about racism, though, King defined uh, and uh, uh, engaged his work and witness um, vis-a-vis racism around this definition. And I think it's still operational for me. I think it still works for me, which is that racism is prejudice plus power. Racism equals prejudice plus power. So that it is difficult um, to be racist when you, you may be prejudiced, uh, but it's difficult to be racist to be racist if you don't have the power to go along with your prejudice. Um, so racism to me is prejudice plus power. And in that regard, it's difficult. Black people can be, you know, unforgiving. They can be, they can behave in prejudicial ways. Um, we're not, you know, we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I see things all the time and hear things all the time that comes, that come out of the mouths of African-Americans that embarrasses me, that disappoints me again, because we, again, are not a monolith. You know, none of us are, 
we're not perfect as a race and neither is any other race. Mm. So I'm not going to excuse things that certain black people say that I find reprehensible. On the other hand, uh, writ large, black people, to my mind, do not have um, um, the power that it requires to take your prejudice and use it to contest the humanity of somebody else. And for me, racism, racism um, aside the, uh, alongside the definition I just offered you, the king used, mm-hmm. I would add to that, that racism by any other definition is the contestation of my humanity. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, we see the contestation of the humanity and the dignity of black people mm-hmm. um, uh, unabated in this country. Right. Mm-hmm. I oftentimes have a, a critique for people who who cite that quote mm-hmm. from King that sure. I don't necessarily think actually applies to you. But I do want to please. I want I want to hear this. Yeah. Which is which is simply that, you know, because because like yourself, I'm somebody who has lived his life to the best I, I, I can mm-hmm. trying to live up to that. Kingian standard, you know, in conduct and in and in, in, in philosophy. Sure. And King certainly believed, although his views, you know, evolved to adapt to the challenges of time as it mm-hmm. uh, shifted in front of him, of Indeed. course. But that King certainly believed that the that the enduring wave for us to challenge racism in America was certainly to put pressure on structures. But that there's little point in doing that if you weren't also reaching the hearts of people. The That's philosophy true. of nonviolence. Mm-hmm is rooted in this idea that love is a transformational social force. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. And so the only reason I offer that statement here is to just not, is to try, from my own vantage point at least, to not provide too much room for an interpretation that says that, well, King didn't really care about reaching the hearts of people. Oh, right? yeah. Because he was just concerned with it. Because I feel like yeah. that's where a lot of activism has mm-hmm. has gone, that there's no need for us to engage in moral no. persuasion. I was looking to go down another road here, but since you brought that quote up, I just wanted to No, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Any, anyone who, who thinks that King was not first and foremost about moral persuasion, right. I think doesn't understand the breadth and depth of his work. Precisely. On the one hand. Right. On the other hand, King was always very clear about this, that one cannot legislate morality. Right. So mm-hmm. he's, his, his end and aim was about changing hearts and changing minds, mm-hmm. but he also realized that you could not legislate morality. King goes a step further uh, to suggest um, and to say, not just suggest, but to say that in that in that fight um, to redeem the soul of America, right. to save the soul of America, oftentimes what he ran up against. And I still think it's true today. Um, the enemy was not always uh, just, you know, the rabid white conservative, but indeed um, the mm. the the person who regarded himself or herself as a as a liberal, sure. as a progressive, oftentimes mm. those persons. Uh, were in our way just as much as as Bull Connor was in our way trying to stop us. Sure. So there's no doubt about the fact that his his, his it, he was uh, he was first and foremost. I remind people we see him as a civil rights leader, and he indeed he was first and foremost. He was a Baptist preacher. That was his mm. calling. That was his mm-hmm. vocation. And so you can't separate his calling, his vocation mm-hmm. from his from his mission to right. uh, to engage in moral persuasion. So I right. wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you on that point. And he was also a systematic moral philosopher. Indeed, right, mm-hmm. right, a thinker of the of the first order. That's right. And it's funny because. We oftentimes uh, don't think about him in that roster when we when we think of you know Plato and Hume mm-hmm. and Kant and Smith. King King is belongs in that list. Sure. And interestingly enough, part of the reason why he doesn't get there in my mind is because he was actually a man of action as opposed to merely thinking. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, 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 uh, and whenever yeah. I have these conversations, John, about mm-hmm. about King, um, and or or I'm trying to assess whether or not there is a particular politician I ought to support. Mm. Whether or not there's a particular person I ought to engage in in conversation mm. on my program yeah. about a variety of issues, what what I what I am most interested in trying to figure out in conversation with people who would call themselves leaders, who would mm. want who would ask for my support 
on any number of issues and fronts. My fundamental question is, what is your relationship to the legacy of Martin King? Yes. That's my fundamental question. What is your relationship Mm. to the legacy of King? And I regard that legacy as the following. Justice for all, Mm -hmm. service to others, and a love that liberates people. Mm -hmm. That's King's philosophy. Justice for all, Mm -hmm. service to others, and a love that liberates people. I want to know what your relationship is to the legacy of MLK before Mm -hmm. I put myself out there to support you in any sort of way. As you well know, King's critique of this country, and I still use it to this day as my, you know, my, my, uh, uh, my grading sheet, my scorecard, if you will, my, for how we, how we assess where America is and where America's headed. Uh, King's triple threat, as you'll recall, was racism, militarism, and poverty. And that is the way that he viewed America. And that's the way he judged America and scored America, if you will. And I still use that same scorecard, racism, poverty and militarism what again is your relationship to the legacy of king Mm. and how do you see those three issues in in late modernity and how america is advancing or not advancing advancing or regressing on those issues that's the way i look that's the prism through which i look and the prism through which i judge people who want to and would call themselves leaders in this in this community and in this country yeah, I, I by no means object to that to yeah. that formulation, and I have a similar sort of posture when I engage people, including not just elected officials mm-hmm. but thought leaders, sure, sure. intellectuals, and so forth. People who would purport to advance a moral view of what mm-hmm. America ought to look like, um, and for me, it, it is it is also grounded in King, uh, and it's grounded in this, uh, but it's grounded in in sort of what I take to be sort of the first principle of of of, of King. So. This liberation, inclusion, justice being sort of the outgrowth mm-hmm. of a consciousness, mm-hmm. right? That proceeds from love and nonviolence exemplified in the gospel, exemplified mm-hmm. in the teaching of Gandhi, mm-hmm. uh, which ultimately says, you know, we seek not to defeat our, or humiliate our mm-hmm. opponents, but to be reconciled them in French, but to be reconciled with them in friendship and understanding. Mm-hmm. And that in this, we achieve the beloved community, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that matters to me because, you know, the as King also said, uh, the the ends are present in the means, mm-hmm. and I think it's a lesson for all humanity, black, white, left, right, mm-hmm. and everybody else in between and around it, to sort of bring that spirit of goodwill even for your opponents, right, mm-hmm. uh, into even the deepest of disagreements and and, and conflicts. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that's the highest order it's sort of challenge. It is a high challenge, right? But but. All the more reason why it's important uh, to to hew to the standard that somebody actually lived and died to set for us. Sure, and you know, I think King, you know, King is that is that is that landmark. I, th- I think I think where we often go wrong, John, um, where we get it wrong is that we we jump into these conversations. Um, I don't mean you and me, but we jump into these conversations in our society in the right. public square, if you will, yeah. without clearly defining the terms. Right. And I don't think you can have a conversation like the one we're having now mm. without it, without defining what love is mm. okay. uh, in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the, in, in our public debates. I, <clears throat> I gave a speech once and the speech was, was about um, whatever happened to the notion of love in the public square. Uh, mm. That was my thing. Whatever mm. happened to the notion of love mm. in the public square. Right. King put love in the center yes. of the public square. Gandhi yes. put love That's in right. the center of the public square. But mm-hmm. you can't have those conversations, it seems to me, without defining what love is. And for me, uh, I go back again to, to King. 
and how King would define it. Love simply means this, that everybody is worthy just because. Hard stop. Hard stop. Mm -hmm. Everybody is equally worthy just because. Mm -hmm. Imagine then how different our public policy would be. Imagine how different then our public debates in the public square would be if everybody were operating off of that fundamental definition of what it what love is, that everybody is worthy just because Mm -hmm. if you ever get to a point in this society where that's the operational definition, it fundamentally changes how we debate these issues, Mm -hmm. because if everybody is worthy just because. Not because of where you went to school, not because of your pedigree, not because the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you live in, the neighborhood you live in, Mm -hmm. how much money you make, who your mom and daddy are, the kind of hookup you have, the Mm -hmm. hookup and access you have. No, 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 no. If we ever get to a point where we operationalize that definition Mm -hmm. in our public policy, that everybody is worthy just because everybody's somebody's child, everybody is somebody's kid, then it fundamentally changes how we see education, Mm -hmm. which means then that everybody in America, ought to have access to an equal, high-quality education. It means that everybody ought to live in an environment that is safe from environmental racism. Mm. It means that everybody ought to have access to equal, high-quality health care. It means et cetera, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. So when when I talk about King, I want us to make sure we understand what we mean when we say love, because King is oftentimes talking about love. And to Mm. my mind, no leader since King has been so adept at putting love in the center of the public square, but that's not some mamby-pamby definition. That's right. When you take that definition that we're all worthy just because it fundamentally changes the way you approach good public policy. Right. And so that's, it's for me, it's always important to kind of bring that full circle if that well, makes if that makes sense at all. Well, it entirely makes yeah, yeah. sense. And it's also, and of course it's not, and you said this too, it's not just about public policy, mm-hmm. but it's about the quality and character and spirit of our debates, which Indeed. means the spirit of our interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, commitment to a mutual humanization, recognize, recognition of each other's innate human dignity, right? That attends That's right. a flourishing and functioning uh, conversation. So and, King and, and, said, a, and a civil dialogue. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. And so, but King said, of course, that uh, love, therefore, is not mere sentimentality. It's not mere emotional That's bosh, right. That's right. right? It is an overarching goodwill. For the other, right? right? He said, God told me to to, to love my love my enemy. He said, mm-hmm. I'm very glad he didn't tell me to like him. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> right? he didn't like Bull Cotter. Exactly. He didn't like George Wallace, exactly. right? And, and why would he? But mm-hmm. love is a higher calling. That's right. I, I don't want to lose the king thread, sure. but instead I want to bring it with us sure. into some of the other, yes, other topics. Uh, because uh, you've expanded the frame here in a way that, you know, and I, I, again, we're just, we're just meeting for the first mm-hmm. time. So you may not have known this, but. What you have just identified is the entirety of my project and the Braver Angels project, I would mm-hmm. argue, uh, at bottom, which is putting love back in the middle of the public square, yes. mm-hmm. back in the middle mm-hmm. of the democratic conversation, the racial conversation, mm-hmm. the political conversation. And so I think that this can travel with us as we move into some of these other fault lines here. Uh, one of the things I mentioned to you uh, before we got started was that I, I consider a significant area of perhaps Differing perspective or emphasis uh, within the conversation over race in America mm-hmm. and over class and opportunity and so forth. Well, is the relationship between race and class and mm-hmm. this question that I sometimes get in trouble for taking aside mm-hmm. on, uh, myself a bit, which is sort of which is kind of like, you know, the primary driver mm-hmm. of 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 inequality of of life experience uh, and opportunity. Now, it's an oversimplification, I think, to mm-hmm. choose one or the other. I'd say that right off the bat. Mm-hmm. At the same time, 
I myself do have a fair amount of sympathy uh, with sort of the thesis of William Julius mm-hmm. Wilson, who never denied that race was, you know, a significant factor in understanding the inequality of, of modern America, but mm-hmm. that, you know, particularly in the aftermath of the of the civil rights movement, you know, uh, in a period of time where, on the one hand, you had you know many African Americans integrating, you know, white suburban communities, being brought into the mm-hmm. universities, being brought into the corporations. Not to mention, you know, Hollywood and sports and so forth, and therefore establishing a lane of opportunity on the other hand, on one hand, whereas on the other hand, you had many more African Americans locked in inner city communities, losing manufacturing jobs to outsourcing, mm-hmm. losing agricultural jobs to insourcing, say through through labor and so forth, um, finding themselves, you know, I mean, the conservative position here would be that the welfare state began to rob these communities of agency and disincentivize uh, family formation. Mm-hmm. I sympathize with with that to a degree, but I think that there's also, as importantly or more importantly, the introduction of crack cocaine mm-hmm. and heroin before that, creating this underground uh, economy of toxicity mm-hmm. and destruction, which not only kills many people outright and ruins many families, but also uh, precipitates the phenomenon of mass incarceration. So you have this class distinction in the Black American experience here in particular. Class distinctions all over America, mm-hmm. but in this particular context, which for me explains why, to some degree, why my experience as a Black man and maybe some of my own sort of, you know, uh, sort of natural biases and how I see things may differ from someone else's because mm-hmm. I'm a Black man, right? Um, and I was born in Inglewood. Mm-hmm. Uh, family in South LA and so forth. I'd go and visit sometimes. And later on in life, I'd marry a woman from the Jordan Downs projects in Watts. I lived mm-hmm. in the Jordan, Down, mm-hmm. pro- Jordan Downs projects for about a year or so. And my adulthood has been spent entirely in South Central Los Angeles, mm-hmm. just, you know, east of uh, Century and Van Ness sure. or so. And so, you know, I've got deep proximity, but that's different from my cousins and certainly my wife's family yeah. who grew up in the hood, who grew up in the projects. Mm-hmm. The truth is, is, you know, I, and I, I'll say this without, sh- without shame. I grew up a code switcher, you know, mm-hmm. I'd speak different ways depending on who I was around, but you mm-hmm. get me, you know, around, you know, an institutional predominantly sort of white kind of, you know, setting. I'm perfectly at ease. You know, my, my, my father, uh, who on the one hand raised me, uh, saying that, you know, when you think about the pantheon of American greatness, You've got George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. I want to make sure you put Muhammad Ali and Duke Ellington right next to him. <laughs> that was my white father, right? So, I like that. Yeah. So that's, that's how he raised me. On the mm-hmm. other hand, he would also raise me saying, John, when you speak, speak the king's English. Mm-hmm. Speak like Martin Luther King. You know, Enunciate mm-hmm. your vows. Talk like you're on the nightly news mm-hmm. and so forth. And you know, implicit in that was a concern I think my father had that I would adopt the idioms and so mm-hmm. forth of what most people were referring to as black culture sure. in in the world around us. And so, you know, being in such close proximity to to not just white people in general, but certain particular sorts of environments where you have to conduct yourself a certain way, very easy for me. If I get pulled over by the cops, I'm never particularly nervous about mm. it, you know? And that differentiates my experience, yeah. I know, in meaningful ways. Um, and so I bring it to this class question, not to say that I'm perfectly representative of mm-hmm. one half of this or that you are, because the complexity of the Black experience is, is deep and rich. Yeah. And so I don't want to oversimplify more than is necessary. But it is simply to say that when I meet Black people who grew up more or less sort of kind of the way I did, and they say racism isn't really a problem in America anymore, but we keep reinventing it through this race industry, right? 
I have some sympathy on the basis of the fact that I personally can identify in myself a black experience for, for whom that's sort of largely true. Okay. And yet I can, I don't have to jump far outside of my own direct experience to say, but that's not true for my cousin. That's exactly. not true, you know, for, for brother living down the mm-hmm. street and so forth. For them, you know, American history goes from slavery to Jim Crow to, to, to the assassinations of black leadership in the sixties to mass incarceration to a life where my wife who grew up in the Jordan Downs projects, her earliest memory of American life, one of, was Rodney King being beaten and mm-hmm. having to lay on the floor you sure. know, uh, in the midst of gunshots and fires and sirens. A woman who's seen more death in her life in the projects than many people serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And, and she got out, but for people who are still in that environment in 2022, across this whole arc of American history, I ask people, I say, when does the American dream ever show up for disproportionately many mm-hmm. African-Americans, right? And yet, that doesn't invalidate, I would say, my experience as a black man, doesn't invalidate, you know, perhaps Coleman Hughes or mm-hmm. John Gordon or folks who grew up differently. And so, you know, my question to you here is, I, 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 the, dif- the useful differentiator for me to a great degree is, is class. I say, you know, class, our class positionality is not detached from the racial history, right? Neither are the operations of our institutions, mm-hmm. but race alone is not enough explain how it is I have an experience the way I have mm. and that my wife has an experience that she has without introducing the socioeconomic reality sure, sure. that differentiates them. And I'm wondering if yeah. their analysis resonates at all. There's a mouthful. Uh, yeah, but no. <laughs> let me, uh, let me try. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, no, no. I appreciate it. I wanted yeah, to listen. Yeah, yeah. Didn't want to interrupt. Right. Uh, plus it's your podcast anyway. Uh, let <laughs> me, right. uh, let me try to tease out three things if sure, I can sure, uh, yeah. and uh, move, uh, make the most of our time here. Um, in no particular order, number one, um, I'm a I'm a reader and I wouldn't say a student, but I, certainly I've interviewed William Julius Wilson many times in my career. Yeah. Uh respect his work, his witness, um, and his research is is has been phenomenal down through the years. So um he's an icon, uh, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh and so I've 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 at times differed and disagreed with some of his conclusions, but you can't argue the research of William Julius Wilson. That said, <laughs> And this is going to sound dismissive of everything that William Julius Wilson Wilson has ever done. Uh, (laughs) But the older I get, the lesser those distinctions between race and class matter to me. And I say those distinctions matter less and less because they're two sides of the same coin. It, 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 It seems to me every time I'm reading data, every time I'm interpreting data, analyzing data, that it when we're talking about black people, if you're talking about race or class, mm. it ends up ultimately targeting or identifying the same group of people. Whether we're in this situation that we're in because of race or because of class, it's still a bunch of black folk. Um, and so I find that, you know, race and class are oftentimes two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. So I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with whether or not that distinction is as stark as it might have once been, if mm. that makes sense, number one. Number two, um, when I think of class, I think of class on two levels. I think of class um, writ large in this country. And clearly there's a class warfare that is being engaged right now. Um, But I also think of class intra-Black America. And what concerns me most about class intra-Black America is that we are getting worse and worse about this class divide in our own community. 
Um, Chris Rock famously told the joke years ago that there are black folk and there are niggas and even yeah, black yeah, folk yeah. don't like niggas. You recall yeah, that joke. I do. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot, as as is the case with most Chris Rock jokes, when you peel back the layers of sure. it, there's something mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Chris is getting yeah. at something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What Chris is really getting at in that joke is class warfare inside the black community. Uh, and so we are certainly, we're sort of turning on each other. Uh, and those African-Americans who have made it um, oftentimes um, start to demonize uh, and to and behave in ways that I think further disenfranchise our brothers and sisters who have not made it, which leads me to the the the, fir- the third movement in this in this uh, in this orchestra, if you will. Uh, the third movement is <laughs> simply this. Yeah, the third movement is, as I see it, that we have to acknowledge in this country that while there are individual African Americans who have done well, to your point, the friends you talk to who feel that racism alone doesn't hold us back, that racism alone doesn't define our predicament. Um, there are individual African-Americans, yourself included, myself included, who've mm-hmm. done remarkably well, mm-hmm. who have been blessed uh, beyond measure, um, who can get the finest tables in the nicest restaurants and get access in the hookup. So a, a, a number of us have made it. You know, you got the Oprah Winfrey's and and the and the Michael Jordans and and the and the Byron Allens and the we could do this all day long. There are a mm-hmm. number of black folk in a variety of industries who have done quite well, but that says nothing about the collective, and that's what concerns me. So it's not just class intra Black America; it's this notion that some of us have made it, but most of us have not. And it's always been it's always been that way. America has always been okay with keeping the names of a few Negroes in their mouths. Mm-hmm. But writ large, they don't seem to be concerned about the larger masses of our people. We talked earlier about the public square. Um, One of the terms that I think has been missing for years now in our lexicon, in our language, we talk politics in this country, is the notion of the public good, Mm. the public good. Uh, And I want to reintroduce that frame, that, 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 that notion into our framework, at least for the conversation today, because when you consider um, what's happening to the greater public. Mm-hmm. You consider uh, the public good that we are not engaging on behalf of all these Negroes who are being left behind. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally, I think, again, changes the conversation. So I- I'm not concerned about the fact that a few of us you know, are doing better than we ever have. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned about the masses of our people. And so that class issue for me is far more important intra-Black America than it is in America writ large. I mean, both are significant for me. But since I care about my people, right. what I'm concerned about is how do we save the masses of these Negroes who are being left farther and farther behind every year? Uh, mm-hmm. That's what that's what I that's what keeps me. If there's anything that keeps me up at night, it's that because I yeah. think we're losing the war to save the majority of our people. Right. So you want to get in and say something? Great. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that on the level on the level of values, sentiments, uh, and and moral framework, I have deep sympathy with mm-hmm. everything that you're saying. I think that on the on the level of sort of you know how am I weighting the different sort of mm-hmm. variables in this equation? I think I'm a little bit different. But granted, okay. it's very complicated. Sure. So, um, so on on your on your second point, the concern about the sort of intra class warfare mm-hmm. within within the black community. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a similar sort of focus and and concern, and yet it's it's some it's somewhat of the inside out version of what it is yours. But I mean, I agree with you that there is a class condescension right. within Black America, where mm-hmm. some folks make it, and then it's just like, well, what do I got to do with you? And that's a that's a big and long standing sure. problem, which I totally agree with. Mm-hmm. But then there's something that looks almost completely different, which is, in my mind, perhaps equally 
problematic. And it is one that takes, I think, uh, an understandable and, and a commitment that I share and that mm-hmm. you share to the public good and to the collective sort of, you know, well-being uh, of Black America. But whether intentionally or unintentionally, you know, uh, I think, um, and I would love to be persuaded that I'm wrong about mm-hmm. this, but it seems to me that there's a degree to which some of us, particularly in more privileged positions within the black community, and by the way, it's worth noting that the black sure. middle class has grown enormously mm-hmm. right over the course of American history. Stagnant now, but I take your point. Well, and, yeah, and, yeah. This, that, and it's a greater uh, America wide yeah. stagnation sure, too sure, sure, present, sure. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but just to say that, you know, there was a time when, you know, Booker T. Washington was the only person who could get, you know, the president of the United States mm-hmm. on the phone call. Uh, that you are the White House every week at a certain certain mm-hmm. point, but it's not just about individuals; it is about an expanded sure. middle class sure. and so forth, right? Um, but my my point here, though, being that it seems to me that there is a danger, uh, and that sometimes we, in failing to adequately emphasize the distinction of life experience that exists along this class spectrum mm-hmm. in the Black community, can allow some of us in a position to be able to tell the story of Black America. To fo- focus social attention and social resources, material resources as a consequence of that on the struggles of black people who do indeed have struggles, but they can be the say, say, for instance, the struggle of integrating into an elite university campus mm-hmm. sure. and having to deal with sort of the microaggressions of that and so mm-hmm. forth. The struggle of wanting to see sort of greater, more equitable representation on Broadway, mm-hmm. in the boardroom and so forth. And raising big sums of money for that, connecting, you know, these sort of efforts towards representation and sort of countering implicit bias and so forth, which I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, looking my nose down mm-hmm. by any means, but that the social attention and resources that oftentimes come to that work can be triggered by the death of a George Floyd, mm-hmm. can be triggered by the death of an Eric Garner. Mm-hmm can be triggered by the aggregate sort of recognition of the fact that African Americans make up a majority of the of the of of this million, two million person prison population in this country while representing 13% of the mm-hmm. population, which suggests a collective struggle of black America. But if you dig deeper into those figures, 80% of that 50% come from 20% of the black community, mm-hmm. which is the black poor and people who've been in multi-generational poverty mm-hmm. in a way that, you know disproportionately many black middle-class Americans uh, live in proximity to, and that makes the Mm -hmm. black middle-class experience different from the white middle-class experience. But still, it's a much different thing to be black middle-class, I would argue, and have to deal with, you know, the microaggressions and and the ways in which the institutional mainstream may present obstacles and difficulties versus being like my 13-year-old neighbor Mm -hmm. on the street I live in who was shot and killed a couple years ago, my wife's cousin who was shot and killed randomly outside of a party. Mm-hmm. Um, my own cousin who was paralyzed, you know, uh, in, in a gunshot uh, incident at a party. People who are being treated treated by police in ways that you and I can probably largely escape from, mm-hmm. right? And so, I, you know, my only concern about the collective language is not the sentiment, but the temptation that exists, I think, to sort of reroute the focus of concern, sort of painting a picture based out of the reality of black poverty, but using it to shift attention in ways that bring a lot more of that constructive focus to parts of the struggle that ought not be the first priority, in my mm. view. So mm. I, I, you may agree or disagree, but I'm hoping that's at least clear enough to, to, to mm. get an idea across. I think, um, I think I follow you. Okay. Um, 
Let me, let me, let me ask a question so sure. I can right. advance the, mm-hmm. the narrative that I think I want to advance, right. yeah. which is whether two questions. One, whether or not you think that the black poor are poor because of their own doing, number mm-hmm. one. Um, and number two, let me ask whether or not you think that there has been enough focus on elevating poor people out of that condition. Well, let me just let me sure. answer number two sure. first, because that's easy. Yeah. No, I don't think there right. has been enough focus, you know, um, whether through philanthropy or public policy or this, that. I mean, it's a complicated question. Yeah, but yeah. No, the simple answer, I think, is no. Okay. Um, on the first point, the, the, the answer is also simple in that, no, I don't think that it is the fault of people yeah. in poverty that they're suffering and black poverty in particular, that we are suffering the, the, the consequences and ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. But I do want to inject some nuance because Please. I also don't want to at all, because I do think of myself as fundamentally fairly conservative, right. uh, although with many different varying sure. you know, angles. I actually like to think of myself as a social justice conservative, which tends to just confuse people. Yeah, but I'm sure. We, I, I can had, see why. <laughs> but if we had time, I would unpack it for you, right? Yeah. Um, but um, the, um, and what I would say is that you know, there are issues, I think, of, of, of culture, of behavior, of the way we treat each other, mm-hmm. right, that do necessitate uh, some remedy on the level of personal responsibility. I don't mm-hmm. think that's enough. Sure, I don't sure. think that's enough. But sure. when you're, you know, on the, but I think people have different stations, right? Mm-hmm. If we're looking at the macro problem, we've got to aim for, for, for policies that can help address that on that level. Mm-hmm. But if I'm also sitting down, you know, with the young brother, who's in the point of making a choice about, you know, do I want to go to school today or do I want to, you know, hang out on, hang out on the streets or, you know, go roll with some people who are going to get yeah. into trouble. You know, th- there's no, there's no bill that's going to be passed time for that. This sure. is a personal responsibility sort of, sort of question. I think that, you know, I, c- I know many people in my life who, who act in ways that are self-destructive because their parents were self-destructive because mm-hmm. they grew up in environments where they were, you know, dad was abusive you're more likely to be abusive to your kids. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility, right? Yeah. And so, you know, black people are no different than anybody else. You put white people or any other group. As a matter of fact, we can point to groups of white sure. people in America, in Appalachia and so forth, who do grow up in roughly analogous circumstances and have the same sort of problems. And so right. it's nothing intrinsic to black Americans in these conditions yeah. at all. But, you know, I don't want to completely invalidate the cultural sort of sure. uh, relevance here. I, I asked those questions. Um, mm-hmm. So now I can advance the, uh, the, the narrative that I wanted to advance. I think I asked those questions, John, because um, one, I want to get clarity on what your right. point of view yeah. was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But secondly, because it's important for me to say to you now that when it comes to this issue of personal responsibility, which I've mm-hmm. talked about ad infinitum, ad nauseum in my career with Larry Elder and others, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I, I can't, put my finger, I can't point to a single group in this country who have been more personally responsible than black people. I, I, you, I, I could, I, we could sit in this room all day long. We'd have this fight. Mm-hmm. You cannot show me a group of Americans who have been more personally responsible than black people. When you consider, my Angelo put it this way, we were stolen, bought, and sold into slavery, mm-hmm. arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. Right. Everything from day one about our existence in this country has been about learning how to love this country in spite of, not because of. Um, this country has had its knee on our neck from day one. When you consider all that black people have endured uh, and consider all the progress that we have made, um, 
pulling ourselves up, frankly, because the systems and the structures that are in place are not designed for us to win. As I said earlier, racism is still the most intractable issue in this country. You can't explain. You can't ever convince me um, that it's it's our being irresponsible um, that is first and foremost responsible for these divides in education, in economics, in housing, in employment. Run the list. That is not just about primarily black people being irresponsible. We get up every day. Mm-hmm. Most of us go to work. Most of us pay our taxes. And again, you know, there there's an element in our community. Uh, that, you know, that needs to do better. No, no question about that. Mm-hmm. Personal responsibility is real. And there are people who want to absolve themselves of their own, mm-hmm. you know, responsibility to do better by themselves. But that's true in any community. Yes. But at the end of the day, you can't show me a community that is engaged in more personally responsible behavior than the African-American community, despite the ways in which we've been maltreated mm-hmm. in this country. I believe that there has been an, a, a malign neglect of yeah. black people in this country. Mm-hmm. And that malign neglect has led to the, the 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 huge numbers of black people who have been stuck in poverty for generations. Mm-hmm. Cornell yeah. West and I wrote a book about this some years ago called The Rich and the Rest of Us, mm-hmm. a poverty manifesto. And in this book, we laid out the fact that this is not really this is not for America a a a, a, a skill problem. It's a will problem. Mm-hmm. You cannot explain to me how in the richest nation in the history of the world. We have not taken seriously the issue of eradicating poverty, economic immobility. Um, these are just issues that we don't take seriously. Mm. And we don't take, ser- take it seriously because, as I said earlier, there is a class warfare that's always been underway in this country. And I mm. think getting worse. Um, but these numbers are not sustainable. This mm. gap between the rich and the rest of us, this gap between the, the, the wealthy and the poor uh, is not sustainable. At some point, when people lose hope, um, and they feel helpless. Um, you start finding your way on that path toward anarchy yeah. because 1% yes, of the people, yeah. 1% mm-hmm. of the people yeah. cannot continue to own and control 95% of the wealth. It's mm-hmm. just not sustainable as a country. And black people have always been at the bottom of that. I, I don't want to belabor the point. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying here is that I believe in personal responsibility. And so do you. Yes. But frankly, so do most Negroes we know. Mm-hmm. They believe and they engage and they behave in ways that show that they are personally responsible for the decisions they make for the outcomes of their lives. Mm-hmm. So I always push back on this personal responsibility question uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and debate because that may that may explain part of the dilemma mm-hmm. that black people are enduring. But it in no way comes anywhere near explaining how it is and why it is that black people have perennially been mm-hmm. at the bottom of the barrel. Personal responsibility ain't the answer to the prayers, my grandmother, grandmother, big mama might say. Well, I agree with that. I agree with that statement. And let me introduce a nuance that may may show you that we're not quite as far apart as perhaps it feels like. I welcome it. I I don't know that we are. Um, Do you know Bob Woodson? Do you have any relationship with him? I've known him, interviewed him a number of times in my career. Right. Yeah. So Bob, Bob is someone I have a close relationship with. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's been something of a mentor for me in, in, you know, in recent years here. Well, and so you're likely familiar with the uh, the work of the uh, the Woodson Center, which sure. has planted you know community Absolutely. community action organizations mm-hmm. across the country. But the uh, so, so so Bob always talks about the importance of not focusing on you know the tragedy stories and the failure mm-hmm. stories and so forth in research and in statistics, but to focus on the on the success stories and the things that people are doing right, even in the most challenging of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that when you put your money where your mouth is, sure. you invest in the things that are working. And it's from that that you can develop 
actually sort of impactful uh, on the ground programs and organizations and so mm-hmm. forth that 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 get real work real work done. I say that to say that in the work that not just you know Bob does, mm-hmm. but many other people uh, and and groups do. And this goes to your point that, and to keep focused on Black Americans, that Black people uh, set a standard for for personal responsibility that is particularly visible in the context of the larger history that has gotten us here, because you can't absent you know a person's behavior from their context, whether contemporaneously or historically. All the groups that you know that that Bob is working with, all the community level organizations that I'm you know that I'm working with and support. The work that we're doing towards personal responsibility are with folks in, e- in all of these communities that are negatively stereotyped sure. as not taking personal responsibility, who are taking personal responsibility. That's why th- we can be on the ground doing that, mm-hmm. right? And so when we talk about, I want to connect this to the malign, malign neglect uh, 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 observation that you just rendered, because mm-hmm. I agree with that. Uh, absolutely. There has been a neglect of Black communities where we have not, in my mind, invested in the institutions of community that make it possible for people who are trying their damnedest Mm -hmm. to live a better life, because the vast majority of them are, to actually gain some footing in that direction. And so that becomes a matter of affordable housing. That Mm -hmm. becomes a matter of quality education. That becomes a matter, I would argue, uh, of the church being engaged with Mm -hmm. the community and not so inwardly focused that they're not worried about anything other than tithes and who Mm -hmm. gets to be a deacon or whatnot, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and there can be civil society strategies, I suspect, that can advance that kind of progress uh, in a more sort of holistic way. And I think that my concern on, on the class question is just, you know, wanting to be somewhat laser focused on that, not at, not at the exclusion sure. of all the other issues, but to just not lose sight of the fact that that there is an investment in black community that can capitalize on the fact that you already have people who live in conditions of mm-hmm. poverty who are doing the work who are willing to do the work and need to be invested in and lifted up and if we broaden the conversation over racism out so broadly to lose track of that in some of the other focuses on you know equity and and, and representation mm-hmm. so forth things that are not illegitimate but speak to a different part of the black experience that is needing deeper dignity and deeper inclusion, but it's not at risk of being shot or locked up tomorrow. Sure. Right. Then, you know, it's a rebalancing of priorities. I'm, I'm arguing for, yeah. right. No, I'm, yeah. I'm all for a rebound. <clears throat> we couldn't agree more on this point. Okay. I am all for a rebalance in priorities, but let's circle back to Dr. King. Sure. Because the answer to all of this, and I hear your point about Bob Woodson uh, saying we should focus more on the success stories. I, 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 I like that idea. Mm-hmm. But let me push back a bit on that. Sure. I think that's part of our problem, that we live in a country that only wants to focus on the success stories, on the individual Negroes who've mm-hmm. done well. Well, and on the elite level. On the elite mm-hmm. level, that, yeah. Right, but they right, don't want right, to put it. The country doesn't want to put a spotlight mm-hmm. on the suffering. Mm-hmm. And when you don't put a spotlight on the suffering, then the suffering itself ends up being rendered invisible. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps us where we are, that the mm-hmm. suffering is rendered invisible. And I, I believe yeah. that, yeah, and I yeah. believe that it's only the speaking of truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the speaking of truth that allows that suffering to come mm-hmm. into the spotlight. Yeah, and right. that's what, that's what I attempt to do in your own way. You attempt to do every single yeah. day. Mm-hmm. But let me, let me, let me just say this though. I think that, um, back to the point about, you know, of, 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 uh, of Woodson saying folks on the success stories, uh, and, and, and specifically people, success stories within the larger context of struggle. Right. It. So, so not like the Oprah's and, gotcha, and the Jordan's, I, gotcha. okay. right? I take that point. 
I, I, I want to struggle back to King right quick because we talked mm-hmm. about King earlier. And here again, King for me is always instructive and informative. He's always, he's always the goat. He's always the go-to. Yeah. King puts Agreed. it this way. He puts it this way. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Budgets mm-hmm. are moral documents. Yeah. Budgets right. are moral documents. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about all these investments that ought to be made mm-hmm. uh, in infrastructure, uh, in employment, in housing, all the things that Negroes need, that black folk need to raise them up. Um, those investments come from a, t- from a particular place mm. or certainly ought to. When we're, when we want to defend Ukraine in a war with Russia, we mint money. Mm. We find billions of dollars overnight from nowhere. Um, in, in a pandemic, we find new monies, um, to support Ukraine in their fight against Russia. And I'm not suggesting that ought not to be a priority. What I'm raising, obviously, yeah. is why we can't find those same resources to elevate these people in this country who happen to be black and brown um, to a higher standard of living. Mm-hmm. Uh, why we can't, why, why we are always, why we're perennially in a fight trying to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, again, budgets are moral documents. And mm-hmm. so for me, state by state, we're at the federal level or at the municipality level. When you show me your budget, I see very clearly what matters to you. And we are in the situation perennially because when you look at the budgets um, that are passed by states and by the federal government every year, you can see what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. In this country, our priority more than anything else is what? Defense. The Defense Department gets more money sometimes than they even request. Mm-hmm. Republicans in Congress will give them more money than they're asking for. Right. And so, again, you take my point. I don't need to belabor this. But if a budget is a moral document and you look at that budget and you don't see a laser like focus in the richest nation in the history of the world trying to elevate people out of poverty and eradicate poverty, then what does that say about the state of our republic? And for me, again, that's not about black people not behaving in responsible ways. Uh, it's not about black folk making excuses. It ain't even about that intra class war that we talked about inside of black America. It's that there is a malign neglect of these particular and peculiar people for a litany of reasons, which we ain't got time to get into. (laughs) But that 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 reality, um, that environment, um, you know, not being addressed in any serious Mm -hmm. and significant way. Mm There are reasons for that, and you and I both know that. Having some great sympathy sure. for your overall analysis, I would also, ex- and if we had time, I'd want sure. to take it piece by piece. We can't, but I would also extend the critique to where we give our philanthropic dollars, right? Sure. What we do with the That's money right. that we make in profit and how we invest that in community. Mm-hmm. Because even if philanthropy doesn't have you know the resources of the federal government, but many of those dollars are in greater proximity to the sure. communities where they can have a direct sort of impact. And so some of my critique of a lot of our modern sort of social justice activism is sort of, in, you know, I, I don't want to just beat up on like the Black Lives Matter Global sure, Foundation sure. and so forth. But the truth is, is that, again, you have the suffering of poor black people being leveraged in a way that seems to direct a lot of dollars in ways that wind up not getting to the people yeah. that are actually most vulnerable, at least in in my view. And so whether you agree or disagree, I, I do see that as another side of the coin that you're describing. I think that this malign neglect is across sectors. Sure, it's, sure. it's the government. But yeah. it's it's and, civil society, philanthropy. I think that we've turned a blind eye across the wider spectrum right. of American society to the enduring suffering of, yes, black Americans, and in particular, this multi-generational class of impoverished black Americans yeah. who are suffering suffering the most. I'd only add one, just one quick caveat. I, I think what you just said, I, as we said in the black church, I'd say amen to that. No disagreement there. 
Uh, I don't even make one distinction that I think we agree on. Hope we do. Charity and justice are not the same things. No, they're not. Charity and justice are not the same Mm -hmm. things. I'm all for charity. But what this country is lacking is not charity. We are a very charitable nation. In situations and circumstances where we make the plea, people put money on the table Mm -hmm. for all kinds of causes. Um, The black church is the most charitable organization in this entire country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Black people give more to the black church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Nonprofit you know, C one three, C one. You know, so we 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 are we are we are the, we are again back to personal responsibility. We are the most charitable folk in this country. Mm-hmm. Every Sunday morning, no matter how hard we work during the week to earn that money, we give money to the institution known as the Black Church to try to do some good yeah. in the neighborhood. That's mm-hmm. what Black people do every day, every Sunday, and people overlook that all the time. There mm-hmm. is no group that's more charitable than Black people. So I believe in charity uh, and I, 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 I celebrate those philanthropic organizations that are trying to put their money where their mouth is to do things in these communities to elevate these, um, these fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, we love to talk about charity in this country sure. and never about justice. They are not the same thing. And what I'm talking about today is not charity, but about justice. Sure. And mm-hmm. that's where I think America is falling short in a variety of ways. I appreciate the charity yeah, yeah. justice distinction. Mm-hmm. This isn't exactly the same point, but it's a complimentary one. And mm-hmm. so to sort of end it uh, on my side with uh, with a sentiment from King, you know, King said that we need love and power. That's right. Uh, that love without uh, power is weak and anemic and power mm-hmm. without love is authoritarian and brutal. That's right. But I do think that people are predisposed to think in terms of power, especially these days. I think, as you said earlier, that it's love that we've got to put right back in the mm-hmm. middle of the public square. Mm-hmm. And uh, to that end, I'm hoping we can keep the conversation going. Brother, I, I've enjoyed this immensely. Um, as I said at the top of the conversation, I'm always open to have my assumptions reexamined. I love having my, my inventory voice. of ideas expanded. Inventory of ideas expanded. It's conversations like this that push me to try to see the world and to see these issues and these problems through a different prism. So thank you for opening my eyes this morning. I appreciate it. Tavis Smiley, it's an honor and a pleasure. Pleasure is mine, John. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America braverangels.org.